Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Burb 360 podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Salazar. The Harrison Burb 360 podcast is an attempt to capture and record narratives of immigrants living in the Harrison Burb community. Using past and present voices of Harrison Burb immigrants, students in our JMU English class have collaborated to create a space focused on the importance of listening to each other's voices. Every person deserves a chance to share their story, and we, as a class, are privileged to share these stories with you in hopes of expanding perceptions of what it means to be an immigrant in Harrisonburg. Each week, Harrisonburg 360 is produced by a different team of students. This week's episode, Bravery Displaced, was produced by Candy Foster, Anthony Salazar, Molly Beauchore, and Rachel Hoffman. In this week's episode, we'll be examining what caused each of our interview subjects to leave their home country to seek asylum in the United States, the impact of educational opportunities, and the importance of women's rights. Both interviewees are from the Kurdistan region, which encompasses eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and western Iran, as well as smaller parts of northern Syria and Armenia. Osman is from Iran, and Sabwa is from Iraq. Although Kurdish people consist of less than 15% of the Iranian population, they also make up about half the number of people in prison for political reasons and have been subjected to political persecution for many years in Iran. Following the 1991 uprising of the Iraqi people against Saddam Hussein, many Kurds were forced to flee the country to become refugees. Our podcast will examine the courage and resilience of our two interview subjects as they fled their home countries of Iran and Iraq to seek political asylum in the United States. Our first interview was conducted with a man from Iran named Osman Razain as part of the Shenandoah Valley Oral History Project. Osman was specifically from the region of Kurdistan, an area that underwent an Islamic revolution in 1979, and this was heavily reflected on the country's new culture and made things difficult for non-Muslims like Osman. Osman's education was greatly impacted by the Cultural Revolution because the educational focus was religious rather than a focus on traditional subjects like mathematics, science, and history. School. Uh, so when did you start uh, school when you were in Iran? Did you start when studying? When I was with... like six years old. Mm-hmm. And then I started school until like, I go to school almost like 10 years. And then after that I stopped. Then you yeah. stopped? Yeah. Did you enjoy your time in school or with any subjects or was it mainly no, just kind of... No, my country, the school is actually, it's nothing, you know, all the time is just talking about Muslim, those kind of things, not talking about the, like some kind of, I don't know, like United States. Oh, so school is completely yeah, uh, religious-based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's been hard it's, for you with it's that. It's big difference, yeah, I know. Yeah. And uh, did your parents, uh, especially your father, work in construction, did he have any type of education or no, not at all? He died last year. Oh really? Yeah, he's like sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, he's eighty, like almost eighty-five years old. The whole life he's working construction. He's not having nothing like really. Living, yeah. So he just kind of grew up and went yeah. straight into the workforce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And your brothers, did they have any type of education, or did they also no? This same job, you know. They sometimes they have a job, sometimes they don't have it. Yeah. It's kind of. Yeah, my country. I told you, like eighty percent people is poor people. They don't have nothing. Only maybe like twenty percent rich people or. As a non-Muslim, Osman suffered under the Iranian regime controlling Kurdistan. 
This made him sympathetic to the plight of other persecuted groups and caused him to become involved in a feminist organization which supported the rights of women. Iranian women faced discrimination in personal status matters related to marriage, divorce, inheritance, and child custody. It's possible that an Iranian woman could face death if they committed adultery. Here, Osman describes his government's view of women and his participation in a feminist organization that protects the rights of women. Because my country, you know, the, the whole Muslim country, the woman is two women equal one man for everything. Wow. Yeah, two women equal one man. So I bet that lets yeah, a lot of problems. You, yeah. For woman is Muslim, for woman is, is too bad, you know. All the time they hit women, they kill women. You know, if you go to police, say, oh, it's okay, it's his wife, it's no problem. A lot of abusive yeah. relationships Yeah, sometimes kill her, yeah. A lot of time, a lot of time it's happened. I, I have a, some, I have a friend, you know, right now she, she live in California, you know. She's from Iraq. But same, she's Kurdish too, you know. She was like 17 years old, you know, 17 years old. One day she say, one guy, the old guy, like 60 years old, she, he come to my house. She said to me, you know, and then he, her, her father said, you have to marry with this guy. The guy, he's 60 years old. She's 17. Wow. Between the guy, the, her father, it's like some kind of like sell something. The guy is 60 years old, she, he has another wife. His wife is not have a baby, you know. Because he wanted this girl only for baby. Just to have kids? They want a contract for four years. For her contract of, yeah. of, of a marriage? Yeah, like make two, three uh, baby and then bring back to the girl, to the, her father's house. Wow. They don't say nothing to the girl. She said after like four years, uh, she had three kids. Two boys and one girl, you know. She said one day my husband is coming after four years. He said, let go, we go to your father's house. Just kicked her out? Yeah. She, he, he don't say to the girl like this. See, come on, go change your dress. Those things, we want to go. Say, where? I want to bring my kids to it. He said, no, no, just you, you and me. And then he go to her father's house and then say, this is your girl. That's it. The contract is finished. Wow. Four years. When she come back, her father, her father and her mother, they separate, they divorce, you know. Her mother is married with another guy. Her father is married with another woman. When she go to her father's house, her father is kicked her out again. Saying, I know one of you. You go where you want to go, go. She go to her mother's house, the same thing. They kick her out. I was working with the feminists in Iraq me, for five years. We saved the woman. Some woman, they, they want to try to kill her. We save it. We have a big building, you know. A lot of different companies, they help us, they give to us money for to help those kind of women, you know. And so, then we saved this girl. We saved for a couple of years and then we sent her to the... She came to move to Canada and then she married with another guy in the California right now. She lived over there. She never see her kids. Oh, so she's yeah, never seen them no. since. It was Osman's involvement with this feminist organization, as well as a rebel group that fought against the Islamic government, it forced him to flee Kurdistan for fear of death, to seek asylum in the United States. In this next clip, Osman discusses his transition into the American workforce. No. Just right away? I'm, I'm really happy, here. <laughs> yeah, with the people. All the time I'm working for a company. I was working Banta, is making a book, Banta book. Okay, what yeah. did you do there? We're making a book. On what? Well, like, what's the book about? It's book, book, all kind of book. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a big company over there. 
Right now it's Donnelly. No more Benta. You know Donnelly? I've never is heard it? of it. They're making a book. There's all kind of book. Yeah, and then after that I work mainland. Mark Jackson is making a cabinet for kitchen. And then, yeah. All the time we talk, I talk to people. I had a lot of friends. Black, white, <laughs> Spanish, you know. All kind of different. So you have no... No, I don't have no any problems problem. with no. it at all. No, I I know like problem because all the time I do I do the right thing. I know do something to hit some people or you know some wrong thing. I hate those kind of thing. You know, I know like trouble actually. You know, try to stay away from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I know like trouble because. Uh, have you had any help from any type of uh, refugee organization to help you kind of learn about American culture and customs or? Anything like that no, at all? Just the no. first time when we come, they uh, told us this is America like this. You have to work or you have to tell the people like this. Some just talk to us something kind of like this, and then. And were they helpful with helping? Were they helpful with uh, getting you moved in and everything? Yeah, the first time when we come, like almost like two months, they help us. Yeah, for everything. Yeah. They come to us sometimes. You need something, or they take us to some office. We're looking for a job. They help. Osman now runs a windshield repair business and finds satisfaction in the many new opportunities offered to him, both economic and social. Osman's story is one of daring and bravery, but he is not the only one who is forced to leave the Kurdistan region for fear of retribution by the government. In our next segment, you will hear from Sawa Madi, who lived in Iraq, where, because of morality police and vigilantes enforcing their country's discriminatory laws against women and non-Muslims, forced many citizens to seek asylum in the United States. Sawa Madi is from the Kurdistan region of Iraq. She has an undergraduate degree in business with a focus on statistics from a university there. She was forced to leave Kurdistan when Saddam Hussein declared the organization she worked for were criminals. She fled to Guam with her brother, where she waited five months before being given asylum to the United States. Why did you leave Kurdistan and Iraq? Um, my immigrant status, I'm um, asylum. Uh -huh. At that time, we used to work for some organization in 1996. And um, Saddam Hussein was in the power. And he was decided to, if those organizations leave Iraq and go back to their country, he was saying, I will kill everybody who work with these organizations and help them. Unlike Osman, who had very limited educational opportunities in the Iranian region of Kurdistan, Sawa's family had the means to provide a university education for all their children, including their daughters. The foundation of her educational opportunities was the decision made by her parents to send her to elementary school where she would also learn Arabic, the main language of the Arabic world. Sawa describes how and why her parents introduced her to Arabic. I understand that you speak multiple languages. Uh, you know, what are they and when did you learn them? I speak Kurdish and Arabic. Kurdish is my mom's language. Uh-huh. And I learned Arabic at school. At elementary school, or did you start when you were very young learning Arabic, or was that's it? A, <laughs> that's a long story, too. Yeah? Um, my, my dad was against Saddam's system, okay? And um, he escaped 
from military. Then um, he moved, Saddam Hussein moved those people from their city, that he moved them to a, a bad area. The area they're not used to it, like in the um, in south, the area where it's very hot, no water, no electricity. It was we lived a life. It was so bad. It was in a little village, and we all are like little. Um, right. I don't like. I wasn't in school yet. Uh huh. And um, my dad was trying to move us to at least to the city of that area, not in that village. Then when we, when we went to the city, um, the population there, they speak Arabic. No Kurdish people, unless like these few family moved down there. And when I went to city, I mean, when I went to school, I, um, the curriculum was in Arabic. So I learned Arabic there. Uh-huh. Like we stayed a few years, then when we, ba- we, we went back, they agreed to go back. They let us to go back to where I used to live, Suleimania. Um, my, my mom said changing these, like curriculum in, from Arabic to Kurdish, it will confuse you guys. So he let us, she led us to stay in Arabic school. Okay. Like the school where all the subject is Arabic. Uh-huh. So that's how I learned Arabic language. It was a long story, sorry. Yeah, no, no, that was an interesting story. So it's like your mother tongue is Kurdish. Is that what you would speak at home with yes. your family? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then um, where you lived... They had a um, a school that was only uh, taught in Arabic, and so then mm-hmm. you went to school. It's kind of similar to here in the United States where people move here with their mother tongue and then school's yeah. only in English. Correct, yes. Yeah. So was that an advantage, or how was that? Was it an advantage to, to be able to speak Arabic? Did you have more opportunity? Um. Oh, I don't know. I was a child, and I learned the language so fast. Yeah. Before I go to school, my mom used to tell us, they call this, this, they call this, and that. Like, she's telling us what is this word in Arabic. Then after I learned Arabic, and grammatically, I was even better than my mom. Uh, I used to make fun of her. I said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> You don't know what they call this because there is a lot of um, Arabic is a hard language. Like yeah, I can, yeah, wow. When you were in college, were your courses in Arabic or in Kurdish? Arabic. Once Sawa completed her elementary and secondary education, she began her university education. In this next clip, she describes her university experience in Iraq. School is different, much different. Over here, um, high school is required. High school degree is required for everybody. Over there, it's not like that. Um, back then, like, it's the, the um, curriculum is a lot different. Um, I see it a lot harder when I see my daughter and other kids, what they do in a school now. Um, over here, it go by semester. 
but in my country is not by semester. Like you have a subject from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Right. So like nine months, you study the same thing. Uh-huh. And if you did not pass, you have to repeat a whole year, not just that subject, for the whole thing. Oh, wow. It's much harder. Over here, I like the system. It's different. It goes by semester. And if you don't pass one subject, you will repeat that, not the whole year because of that subject. So I like the system, the um, education system here. Over there is not like that. And then you mentioned earlier, it's for you, um, college was free, and then they even gave you spending money. Yes. So is it the, so? How would you compare the university um, uh, opportunities in the United States with uh, the way the university opportunities are in in Iraq now? Is it has that changed or? Oh, um, over there um, you have more opportunity because everything is free, and even the dorm you go, they give you like um, a room for free. They give you a little bit. They used to, like, I'm talking about, like, 20 years ago. Right. They give you a little bit of money for your expense and the tuition-free, books-free, everything. Like, people has more opportunity to go there. But sometimes, like, people, um, they don't finish college uh, over there. They say because there is no a lot of um, opportunity to be higher, um as their degree, like to be higher to working with their degree, then some people say, well, I'm going to go to college if at the end I'm not going to get hired. I'm not going to get, like, paid good. I have to do other jobs, not um, working in my field. Right. So yeah. that's why you make people not going to college. Or sometimes some family issue. For example, if a boy or a girl has... They need to work before they go and finish college to support their family. So, and other stuff, the war or other stuff make them not have a college degree. While the rights of women were limited in the area of Kurdistan where Sawa lived, due to the support of her family, Sawa was able to obtain a university degree. In this next clip, Sawa describes common issues for women in the region. What was life like for women there? Was it different than what life was like for men? In the park, we, it was a little bit hard. Like, the culture is different completely. If you compare the culture here, over there, it's different. But the North Park is kind of better from the other part of Iraq. That's what I consider, like, um, they respect women more. But still, like women in those countries facing a lot of issue. Yes. So you're. So I. So I, let me see if this is correct again. Like the northern part of Iraq or Kurdistan, uh, Kurdistan, it was um, maybe a better place for women to live. Yeah, because, women has more freedom. Like uh -huh. allowed to work outside home. Mm -hmm. And um, somehow, in some families, you're allowed to choose your husband, choose the person you married to. Um, I don't know. The family I came, like my family, was like that. Like it was, there wasn't 
very restricted about like um, who I choose or they allow me to go to college. Um, yeah, a lot of others at that time, it was like that. So was life as a woman living in the Iraq region of Kurdistan. Was very different from the oppression faced by women who lived in Iran, as described by Osman. Saul was able to complete her university education and get a job with a company working with the United States, at the time Saddam Hussein was in power. Because of her employment, Saul was forced to leave the only home she had ever known, and was thrust into uncertain circumstances. Upon her arrival, she had to take jobs that didn't require university education, but she still set educational goals for herself in her adopted country. The United States. Her first job was in a factory. And when they told me you need to work, and at first I worked in this company, they make me screw. It was a little bit hard. I worked uh -huh. from eight to five, and I'm not used to this much working hours. Yeah. And this is one side, and the other part, I miss my family a lot. It was hard. I, I can tell you, I cried every day. Later, Sawa became a hairstylist and opened her own salon. She now works as an interpreter in our community. Both of these occupations required training and had a certification process. Sawa demonstrated her courage and resilience as she undertook two new careers after her arrival in the United States. Sawa is still willing to take risks as she prepares to embark on a new career path. So what are your uh, job or career goals for the future? You seem like you have so many skills. Thank you. Yeah. I was um, I was planning to do teaching certificates since I have bachelor's degree in a different field. Uh -huh. um, I sent my um, transcript to, to the state, and they sent me back few classes I have to take. But I haven't since all these happened, viruses, the business, and I, I don't know. I was so busy at that time, and um, they gave me, the state gave me three years. Like, I, I can do it through, like, any colleges uh -huh. within three years. So maybe I'm doing that. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's, that, that sounds like a great opportunity. Yeah, so I get teaching certificate in math, then I can teach in high school, middle school. Well, we need good math teachers, that's for sure. <laughs> that's what everybody says. As you can see, Sawa is a lifelong learner. Her educational journey began with the support of her family in the Kurdistan region of Iraq and continues here in Harrisonburg. Her first job was in a factory, and now she plans to work on her degree in education to teach math in middle or high school. Courage and resilience have been important in Sawa's life. Courage and resilience are common themes in the narratives we have heard today from both Sawa and Osman. These themes are also seen in literature, such as Dina Nieri's novel, The Ungrateful Refugee, We Have No Debt to Repay. Like Sawa, who had a university degree from Iraq, but could only first find work in a factory because her English language skills were weak, Nayeri talks about how her mother, who was a medical doctor in Iran, could only find work in a pharmaceutical factory, 
where her bosses and co-workers would question her intelligence daily, though they had a quarter of her education. Her accent was enough, if she took too long to articulate a thought, they stopped listening and wrote her off as unintelligent. This is a common issue that immigrants face when they first arrive in the United States, the inability to speak English. While Sawa could already speak two languages fluently, Kurdish and Arabic, she was just beginning to learn English. Because of her courage and resilience, she began her journey to become a fluent English speaker as soon as she arrived in the United States. Additionally, Sawa did not stop pursuing better job opportunities. As she perfected her English speaking skills, she achieved her professional goals as a hairstylist and business owner and entrepreneur. Her perseverance is a strength that serves her well and will continue to benefit her as she studies to become a teacher. Both Sawa and Osman are from Kurdistan and faced oppressive governments in Iraq and Iran, which were determined to limit their human rights. The two of them were forced to leave their homes and request political asylum simply for what they believed in. For Sawa, it was something as fundamental as her place of employment. She worked for a company that didn't support Saddam Hussein's government. For Osman, it was his unwillingness to let women be treated as second-class citizens. His respect for women and his courage to protect them from abuse or femicide is heroic. In a similar fashion, Sawa's family protected the rights of women by guaranteeing their daughter a university education. While Osman's and Sawa's educational opportunities are distinctly different, both have experienced professional success as citizens of Harrisonburg. Osman is a business owner and Sawa is pursuing her dream to become a math teacher. After listening to these two stories of courage and resilience, I think that it is important to reflect on the individual immigrant stories in our community. Stories of bravery, risk-taking, perseverance, and determination. Our title, Bravery Displaced, comes from this idea. Both Osmond and Sawa fought for their respective causes and were forced to leave their homes for this bravery. They uprooted their lives because they valued their freedom and the freedom of others. They're willing to fight for freedom and the human rights of all citizens, even if it meant starting a whole new life in a foreign country. So it is important to share and honor stories like these because we often forget how common they are. Thank you for joining us today on Harrisonburg 360. We're grateful to Sawa Madi, Kate Morris, Bondi Emiot, Seva Roth Mullet, and Kristen Madoni for helping make this episode possible. Our host today was Anthony Salazar. Interview with Sawa Madi was conducted by Candy Foster. Our research and content producers were Candy Foster and Rachel Hoffman, and their audio producers were Molly Boshore and Rachel Hoffman. Join us next time for another episode. Harrisonburg 360. Real people. Real stories. One community.